The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Hey, um, we are going to do, you know, undertake a, just a small task uh, this evening. We're going to try and walk through the entire Bible. So, um, you know, I hope you guys are, are ready for that. It's my goal uh, to finish at least by 11 o'clock, so I think that it, if you guys are tracking with me, we'll be able to make some time and, and kind of walk through it all. Now, uh, go ahead and open up your Bibles to the book of Genesis, of course, where things begin, and we'll start out with just um, inviting God to speak and uh, to open our hearts to his voice. So, Father, as we come to your word, I am uh, keenly aware of how easy it is when trying to teach these topics um, to get bogged down in the details. But, Lord, I pray more than anything that with clarity you would bring to the surface the reality of your kingdom. Lord, that you would speak to us about our role in your kingdom, where we fit, Lord, and what it is that we have look have to look forward to as your kingdom comes in fullness. So God, use your word to instruct, to shift our perspective, to change our hearts, to convict us of sin, Lord, and to train us that we might be a reflection of your glory. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Okay, so we are in a series right now um, that is simply titled Biblical Theology. It's the unfolding revelation of the Word of God. Now, our goal in this, first of all, as soon as you say, like, biblical theology, I think uh, some people immediately are like, okay, I already am tuned out. <laughs> and, that, and that's not because theology is boring, but I, I think it's because we have an aversion to being overloaded with information. So I'm going to try and condense things as much as possible. My hope, my goal is that we're, that we're going to be able to talk sort of conversationally. And I'm going to give you um, big ideas, uh, but maybe boiled down, distilled uh, a little bit uh, to, to try and help us be able to digest the whole thing. Uh, so we're undertaking a short study of biblical theology, and, and, and I, I, was, I was thinking about this. So what is it that makes biblical theology distinct from systematic theology? Maybe you've heard those two terms, and, and maybe some of you haven't. Uh, systematic theology is, is sort of a, it's a way of looking at sort of the whole of Scripture and saying, okay, I want to understand uh, atonement, Right? And then what you do is you gather all the verses in the Bible about atonement, and you begin to kind of process those and boil them down to where you get a well-rounded understanding of what atonement means based on everything that you have gathered from the Bible. And that's, that's one approach to looking at topics or understandings or, or doctrines throughout the Bible. Uh, biblical theology is focused slightly different, though. Its approach is to say, okay, how has God revealed these doctrines in the unfolding course of history and time? So starting with sort of the beginning of the Bible and, and looking forward, how did God just continue to add to the pieces of this understanding so that more and more it grew into a deeper concept that was lodged into the hearts and minds of God's people? 
So that's exactly what we're going to do. And, and ex- for, as an example, last week Jeff talked about discipleship. And, and Jeff traced uh, with us the unfolding story of God's creating of God followers. Starting all the way back with Adam and the command to, hey, do this, follow me, love me, be with me, here in this garden place, fill up the earth, subdue it, all of that. And then tracking that all the way forward and seeing Adam's failure and then God continuing to call through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and on into the children of Israel and then through Jesus, his son eventually, and, and then to you and to me, those who are part of the church, those that have been called to be God followers or disciples. And so our takeaway from last time then is to remember that a disciple is not just an attender of religious services. It's not just somebody who like shows up and that's all that's required. Now, I know it's not that way in our church. I'm so, so grateful for that. But in a lot of churches that I was around growing up, the general sense that I got, and maybe that was my own immaturity, I'm sure there were real believers who are always a part of that. It's always a mixed multitude. But the, the general sense in many of the places that I grew up around uh, Christianity was that the goal was like Sunday and whatever Bible study was happening. And then you would go and you were sort of like this passive participant. You sit, you shut up, you listen to person who knows stuff. Maybe if you're, if you're good at it, you take notes. If you're not good at it, you just sit and shut up, <laughs> right? And then, you know, you just survive until the next time you have to go and listen to the, the, the new talk, right? And that was kind of my concept of, of what God was doing. But, but Jeff really, I think, brought home for us that was never the intention of God. Not that we would be attenders, but that we would be people who are actually following God ourselves. God has been working that into the hearts of his people all throughout the unfolding revelation of biblical history. And so, the point then for us is not Sunday and Wednesdays, is it? Disciples are formed when God's people begin to digest the word for themselves and they begin to say, okay, if this is true, how do I come under God's authority and begin to live that out in day-to-day life? What does that look like? What does that look like for my marriage and in my finances? And what does that look like in all areas and aspects of life, from work to my inward thoughts and what is happening on the inside of my heart? Uh, to what extent does God have authority over me and how much am I willing to follow him in that? Now, part and parcel with that is the topic that we're going to look at tonight. Last week, we talked about sort of, I guess, a focus on us as following God. But today, we're going to talk about looking at the Bible through the lens of the kingdom. The kingdom. That's our our topic this week. The kingdom of God. So here's a question. Is the Bible one story? Or is it multiple stories? Multiple chapters? Maybe multiple stories, but maybe one story? I can remember feeling, even when I first started doing ministry as a, as a pastor, my understanding of the Bible was, was really disjointed. Like, if you were to ask me, like, I could never say this because I know pastors are not supposed to say stuff like this, right? But if you were to ask me, okay, so um, what good is the Old Testament? I would say, well, the Old Testament points us to Jesus. 
Okay, well then, uh, what, what, what do you need in the Gospels? Well, you know, the most important parts of the Gospels are like that little bit at the end where uh, Jesus dies, your sins are paid for, he's raised from the dead, but like his life and stuff like that. Like if, if, if I was missing that part in my Christianity, if I had no knowledge of his life, I felt like that would have taken nothing away from my understanding of, of, of the Gospel. And I can't tell you how wrong I really was. The issue that we're looking at tonight is the subject that grabbed the entirety of the Bible and put it together for me in such a way that the whole thing made sense as one story. Some people have tried to do that with various systems. They, they do that with a, a system called dispensationalism, which divides the whole of the Bible and Bible history up into epochs of time in which God is interacting with, men, with mankind in specific ways. And, and, and that, that's one way, and there's merit to that. Uh, another way is that people look at it through the lens of covenant. And the promises that God makes to mankind and the terms by which he relates to them during those promise periods, the covenants. So they'll look at the Adamic covenant, the covenant that God made with Adam and then again with Noah. And they go, okay, well, you know, here's how we understand the whole of the Bibles through covenant. But both of those systems actually, as I, as I really spent some time thinking about that, both of those systems are really serving this idea. What is God doing? What's his MO? Does he have a motive in what he's doing? And, and yes, we could say the short version, his own glory, but his own glory, how? How is he going to display his own glory? The, the short answer, I'm going to give you the answer up front, the kingdom. He will display his glory best through the kingdom of God, when it is fully realized, his glory will be on display like at no other time in history. So, the kingdom of God. I, I think it's helpful sometimes as we, as we start out and we begin to kind of process these things. When you say kingdom of God, Jeremy, what do you mean by that? What are you saying? Because I've heard of cults that include that, right? Uh, that have a heavy, heavy emphasis on the kingdom. And then there's, then there's other wings of Christianity that talk about the kingdom as though everything has already happened and all the miracles and all the wealth and everything that God has promised in the kingdom is already here and we already have access to it. And so that means we can heal whenever we want at will. We can claim riches. We can do whatever we want. What do you mean by the kingdom of God? A while back, Sam was teaching on the subject and he gave this very helpful definition from, from Rick Warren. I thought it was a really good one. It says this, or he said this. If Jesus is king in heaven, then the kingdom of God is in heaven. If Jesus is king reigning on earth, then the kingdom of heaven is now on earth. And if Jesus is king in my heart, then the kingdom of God is in me. The author, Graham Goldsworthy, put it this way. He said, the kingdom is God's people in God's place, under God's rule, enjoying God's blessing. 
Or to summarize, just a short version here. The kingdom of God is wherever the things that have been created joyfully surrender to the rule of God. It's where God's will is being done. Right? And so when we talk about the kingdom of God, we're talking about the rule of God over his creation. So let's begin to dive in. How do we see this then unfold in the scriptures? You guys are opened up to Genesis, hopefully. Just as a preview, there's, a, there's sort of a pattern that follows in the Old Testament. Um, it's very cyclical. The pattern uh, cycle kind of works like this. God distinguishes his authority. He, God defines his people. God delegates his mission. And God declares his rule. So God distinguishes his authority. God defines who his people are. God delegates his mission. What, what, are, what are his people to do? And then God declares his rule. This is what I'm doing through that. Okay? Now, after that, whenever this, this moment happens where God is talking about the kingdom or he's reiterating his rule over, over uh, mankind and over creation, it's always followed by a series of stories that unfold how man refuses to sit under the rule of God. And then God's discipline and then God's redemption. Right? So God says, you're mine. You belong to me. That's his distinction of authority. And then he says, and you are my people, right? You belong to me. And then he delegates his mission. This is what I have for you to do, for my glory, for your good. This is how you will partner with me in the world. And then he declares, and this is what I'm building, right? This is, this is what the world will look like. This is my rule, and this is how you live under my rule, Okay? Then right after that, we see man's failure, we see God's discipline, and we see God's redemption. So we're going to start in the garden, Genesis chapter 1. Now, how does God distinguish his authority in the beginning of the Bible? Well, right off the bat, you see God's power over everything. Because in the beginning, there was what? God. What else was there? Nothing. No particles. You want to say, you know, God's occupying space, but space itself did not exist, right? All of that was God's brainchild. It was his intellectual property. Then how did he, how did he make all that come into being? He spoke. That's a little bit of authority, right? As he begins to speak, everything that did not exist came into existence and began to function according to the command, the decree, the rule of God. So he says, atoms exist. Atoms exist. Light be. Light is. And everything that is happening in the created world is falling under, coming under the rule of God's decree of his command. Even to this very day, you know, scientists are, it's such a funny thing. When you start to argue about like science and, uh, you know, whatever else, and they say, well, because we understand these rules about how the universe functions, we no longer have a need for God. I'm like, who, who made the rules? Why do the rules exist? Why is there order 
when there should be chaos? Why does gravity work? Why do these laws exist in the world? They exist because they have a designer. And by the decree, the wisdom, the command of God, everything that has not existed previous to this moment in creation begins to exist because of his command. And so he declares, he distinguishes, excuse me, his authority. His authority and rule are established through creation. He's self-existent. He is self-sufficient. He is independent. He's uncreated. And from that power and from that authority, God creates everything that exists. And then he defines his people. You guys remember in verses 26 and 27, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. And God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And so He defines his people. You, Adam, Eve, are my people. You are created for my glory, to reflect my image and who I am. And you're going to partner with me in everything that I have begun to do in ruling over the world. I've created commands for the ocean and said, hey, don't pass beyond this point. I've created commands for the the sun and the moon and the stars and their appointment and why they exist and why they are there. And, and, And they submit to me. And now you also, mankind, you are to come under my rule. You're my people. And here is your mission. This is what I've given you to do. Fill up the earth. Multiply. And then do what I've done. Subdue it. Bring order to it. And then he gives them a sort of little mini example of what that looks like to bring order. After creating Adam, he builds a garden-like area that we call the Garden of Eden. And he takes Adam and he places him in that garden. And then he basically says to Adam, okay, Adam, listen, this is what, what I have done right here in this garden. I want you to continue to do. Fill up the earth in this same manner is the implication. And so God then delegates his mission. I want you to be a willing participant in the kingdom that I am building. Fill up the earth and demonstrate my rule and order. What I have done for you in the garden, now you go and do as well. And then he declares his rule. And he says uh, in chapter 2, verses 17 and 18, Uh, Actually, it's back up to 16. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You shall surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Here's the, the bottom line. Listen, Adam... There's only a few things that I have for you. One, you're going you're gonna to mirror who I am and display my glory. And then you're going you're gonna to help with me in bringing dominion, rule, to the earth. And I want you to enjoy everything that I've made. There's just one thing. I want you 
to enjoy everything that is made except for this over here. That will bring you death. Not necessarily because there was some weird bacteria in the fruit or, you know, whatever people think. But because the act of rejecting God's rule would ultimately cut them off from the source of life. If they say, I don't want you to rule over me, there is no opportunity then to receive the life that God gives. And we all know, of course, what Adam did. And, and the story sort of spirals down. Adam and Eve sin. They reject the rule of God. And after refusing God's rule in preference for their own, so that they could be like God, right? So they could rule themselves. The consequences of that begin to spiral down all the way down to the days of Noah. Where the world becomes so wicked and so evil that God essentially says, hey, we're going to have to hit the reset button here. We're going to have to start over. Because every inclination of mankind is unrestrained in the evil that it desires to pursue. He preserves then Noah, and then he starts over again. And we see this process. God distinguishes his authority. He judges the earth, says the earth is mine, and everything in it. And if I want to declare judgment on it, that's exactly what I do. And he judges the earth. He, in his mercy then, spares Noah in his grace. And he distinguishes that he has the authority to do so. God judges the earth, and then God defines his people. He says, okay, Noah, you belong to me. Genesis chapter 6, verse 18. You can flip over there just real quick and, and read what it says here. He says, but I will establish my covenant with you, Noah, and you shall come into the ark, you and your sons, wives, uh, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And then he gives them commands. So he says, Noah... You are now my people. My covenant, my agreement, my relationship is with you. You're my people. I'm your God. And we're in this together. So he defines his people. God determines then to save Noah. He delegates his mission. First part of the mission is preserve life on the earth, right? But then when they get off the boat, do you guys remember what happens in chapter 8? They get off the boat, uh, and in verse 1, no, excuse me, not verse 1, verse uh, 16. Go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you, and bring you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. And then uh, down on verse uh, 1 of chapter 9. And then God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill up the earth. Do you guys recognize that phrase? Remember the same thing he said to Adam. 
The agenda is still the same. Now, new characters, right? But the agenda is still the same. God's wanting to fill up the earth with people who live under his rule. So he distinguishes his authority. He defines his people. He saves Noah. He delegates his mission, fill up the earth, and extend my rule, my kingdom, bring order to the earth. And then God declares his rule. In chapter 9, verses 1 through 7, he establishes the first form of divinely guided government with the power to execute justice. And he says to Noah, listen, what was happening before the flood that was so wicked and so evil in my sight, I I don't want that to happen. We're going to limit this. So if somebody is is a murderer, don't, don't, don't have any mercy on that. If they shed a man's blood then their blood also should be shed. I have to limit the amount of evil that is is being dispersed through the earth because my goal is to fill up the earth with my glory, not with man's sin. And so Noah and his family step off the ark. They begin to live under the rule of God, but then... From that point forward, the story begins to spiral downward again. And you guys know what happens. Right shortly after this, in the, within a couple chapters, chapter 11, all the people who are now living as a result of Noah going out and fulfilling the command of God and filling up the earth, all the people that are gathered together say, you know what? We don't want God to rule over us. Let's build our own kingdom. Right? Let's do our own thing. And they reject the rule of God and seek to establish their own. So God comes down. He intervenes in human history again. And judgment once again happens. The earth is divided in that, or the people groups of the earth are divided in that moment. And then you start to think, okay, so is God's kingdom ever going to happen? And in the division of those kingdoms, God begins to single out once again a people for himself. He distinguishes his authority. Um, Genesis chapter 17 to one particular family. So flip forward with me in Genesis chapter 17. In verse 1, it says this, When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abraham and said to him, I am God Almighty, or El Shaddai. Walk before me blameless. Okay, so first of all, God gives himself a title. This is my authority. I am God Almighty. I do what I want. I have all authority. And after distinguishing his authority, he defines his people. Down in verse 4. Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be a father of a multitude of nations. Abraham, you're my people. You see it again? Same cycle as what happened before with Adam and again with Noah, and now it's happening with Abraham again. He says, okay, Abraham, you're my people, and I'm going to multiply you greatly. I'm going to make you fill up, and you're going to be the father of a multitude of nations. You're going to fill up the earth, Abraham. And then God delegates his mission. God delegates his mission, verses 5 through 8. He says this, No longer shall your name be called Abram, but you shall be 
uh, but your name shall be Abraham, for I've made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings will come from you, and I will establish my covenant between me and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. So he says, okay, you're my, you're my people, and you're going to fill up the earth, and kings and kingdoms will come from you, and you will be my everlasting possession. And I want you to partner with me in that, Abraham. And then he declares his rule, and this is how you will partner. This is how you will make yourself distinct in all the nations that have all kinds of gods and, and are serving all kinds of created things. I want you to stand out as distinct. And, and so how, I'm gonna, how am I going to do that? Well, in verses 9 through 14, he declares that this will be the sign, this will be the terms of the covenant, that every male child will be circumcised. And here's what that meant. It meant that... Abraham's life of obedience to God would, would, would be signified by obedience in the most intimate areas of his life. It would mean then that Abraham and his descendants would be marked that their bodies even would bear the sign of surrender to God's will and commitment to his rule. They would live under God's rule and be blessed. And whoever denies the covenant, he goes on to say at the end of uh, verse 14, any uncircumcised male who is not, un is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Okay, here we go. Either you come under my rule or you don't. And if you don't come under rule, my rule, you don't belong to me. Either you submit to me or you don't submit to me. But if you're not going to submit to me, don't call me king. Don't call me Lord. Don't call me God. Don't call me El Shaddai. We are not connected in that way. The rule of God is part and parcel with the relationship with God. He's the king. We are members of his kingdom. He commands, we obey. That's how it works. And from that point on, through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the 12 sons of Jacob, the promise continues to be affirmed to each generation. Yet at the same time, there is this downward spiral of depravity as they leave the land that God has promised them. They land in Egypt Eventually, they end up in Egyptian captivity. All of their families are corrupt with all kinds of sin. There's all kinds of bad things happening. And God's people finally find themselves enslaved under Pharaoh's rule. So do you see this pattern? Are you seeing kind of this cycle? God says, okay, I'm God. Follow me. You're my people. Now, do what I've asked you to do. Come under my rule. Here is your mission. Fill up the earth. Reflect who I am. I want even the Gentiles, God would later say in the book of Isaiah, I want even the Gentiles to know who I am by the way that you live in humble surrender and obedience to me under my rule as king, as sovereign. But, the patriarchs fail, and then we get the story of Israel. 
In Exodus chapter 3, God comes to Moses and begins to talk to Moses. And he he distinguishes, first of all, his authority. And in Exodus chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, when he meets him in the burning bush, he says, Do not come near to me. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on on which you are standing is holy ground. And then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And then Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. He says, the same God who had authority since the very beginning. You can track it down. I'm the same king. Always have been. Always will be. And I've got the same requirements that I had for Abraham and for Isaac and for Jacob and for your fathers all the way down. So he reveals himself in a burning bush to Moses. He recalls his covenant to use Abraham and his descendants. And then God defines his people. And he says, and this group of people here in Egypt, in captivity, are my people. Verse 7. Then the Lord God said, "Uh, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Israel. He lays ownership of this group of people and says, they belong to me. And then he delegates mission. Um, In verse 8, he says, And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, to bring them out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the places of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. And then he says, Their cry has come up before me. Here's, Here's the big idea. I'm going to free them from the rule of the Egyptians, give them their own place under my rule so that they might joyfully worship and serve me, living as a reflection of who I am in the land that I give them. That's the big idea. And then God declares his rule. As you track through the story of Moses, God begins to deliver his people. He uses awesome, miraculous plagues. He takes the children of Israel on the night of Passover out out of Egypt to the Red Sea. Uh, They get to the Red Sea, miraculous crossing there. Those of you who have seen the cartoon, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It's amazing. Uh, They get to the other side, and they end up in the desert. They end up at the foot of this mountain called Sinai, where they are to receive from God another covenant. A covenant that does what? Distinguishes them as his people and gives them the terms of obedience. And in chapter 20 of Exodus, through chapter 24, the giving of the law is the confirmation of this covenant. That God's people will live under God's rule and be blessed. Or, if they refuse to live under his rule, what will happen? They'll be cursed. There's consequences. If they will not come under his rule. And then the story does what? It spirals down, and what comes next is the long history of Israel refusing to live under the rule of God. And they do it in many, many numerous ways. Remember when they refused to go into the promised land? Remember when they refused Moses as a leader? Remember that? And God had to correct them? Do you remember when they finally get into the land? The old generation dies off after 40 years of floating around in the desert. 
spinning brodies out in the sand. They finally get into the land that God's promised them. Did they ever possess all that God had promised? No, they never did. A matter of fact, within a couple generations, the entire book of Judges is dedicated to people saying, you know, we don't really like God ruling over us. And God's like, oh, okay. How do you like the Hittites? Oh, really? How do you like the Jebusites? How do you like the Hivites and the Canaanites and the Perizzites? You don't want me to rule over you? How about these guys? And that happens again and again until finally they're like, okay, we want someone to rule over us. Let it be someone. We just need, you know, someone with skin on. Not God. Finally, the last Old Testament judge is a guy named Samuel. And, 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 and it comes to the end of, of Samuel's life, and the people come to Samuel. They're like, give us a king. We just want a king. We want to be like the other nations around here. They all have kings. We want a king. Doesn't that sound like kids? God, they have an iPod. Right? They're like, they, they got kings. We want a king. Samuel goes to the Lord with that. He he begins to pray and he he begins to talk to the Lord. And the Lord says, hey, Samuel, don't sweat this. They have not rejected you. What did he say? They've rejected me. My rule. My authority over them. That's what's really going on. He says, okay, give them a king. But tell them what that includes. Tell him what comes out. He's going to take your fields. He's going to take your horses. He's going to take your women. And you are going to hate every last minute of this. You will not like having a king. But I'll give it to you. You don't want me to rule over you? How about this guy? And the rest of the Old Testament, the history of Israel is one ruler after another being raised up. Some of them were better than others, but they're all miserable failures. Every single one of them. Never once did Israel go, gosh, it's so awesome having a king. The closest thing was Solomon, but by the time Solomon died, guess what they did? They came to Solomon's son and they said, hey, your dad really oppressed us. He took everything from us. Can you lighten the load a little bit? Solomon's son said, nah, uh uh-uh. He cast a really terrible insult at him, uh, at his own father, actually. And and then he says, "Uh, no, you know, you think my dad was hard? Wait till you see how I do things. You don't want him to rule over you? How about this guy? Right? And then the kingdom splits at that moment. There's a northern, there's a southern kingdom, and the history of Israel unfolds. And next thing you know, both kingdoms fall into captivity because the rejection of God's rule, the refusal to live under his commands. And some kings, they they didn't even remember the covenant that God had given them. And all of a sudden, they're like cleaning out the temple. They're like, you know, sweeping things out. And they find the scroll. They're like, hey, what's this? Open it up, read it. They're like, oh, we're God's people. We didn't know that. Like from generation to generation, they're forgetting that they belong to God and that they live under his rule. (laughs) And so what does God do? He sends prophets. He's like, hey, it's not always going to be like this. 
He sends prophets to rebuke them in their sin, to get them to come back under his rule. He's like, hey, you guys have, you've left off justice. You think, like, even, like, you're making sacrifices. But you think it's because I want bulls and goats. If I wanted bulls and goats, I would just kill them. I'm God. That's not what I'm after. What I'm after is your heart surrendered to me. That's what I'm after. You're a people who honors me with your lips. You, you say all the right things, but your heart, it's so far from me. You don't want me to rule over you. You just want me to shut up. That's what the sacrifices are about. It's what the trotting of my courts is all about. Just make God happy so he'll stop bugging us. Now, on the one hand, I am I'm like, I'm like, bad Israel, shame, shame, right? On the other hand, can't you relate? God, I don't want to seek you. <laughs> Just tell me what you want. Give me the rules. I don't want to have to talk to you every day. I don't want to have to like, uh, wait on you and, and want your will and, and check my heart all the time. Just tell me what the outward things are that you want me to do so that I can just do it and, and just I'll see you when I die. But that's not what God wants. He wants people surrendered to his will. The, the, the relationship God has always wanted to have with mankind is that of a hand in a glove. Us, filled with God, animated by him, and living out a surrendered will for his glory. And so, the spiral down in Israel is this refusal to trust God, to live under his rule. There's 40 years of wandering, the crossing of the Jordan, never really inheriting all that God promised. God's need to... Uh, to rebuke them through the judges, Israel's desire for man to rule uh, more than God, and then uh, finally a kingdom that is divided and God sending prophets to tell them, hey, you, you've gotten way off track. Now, in the middle of that kingdom period, though, these prophets that come, there's some amazing things. Uh, the, the prophets begin to speak of a time when God will raise up an eternal king, a king whose throne will never end. A king who will live and reign eternally. And the spiritual temperament of the entire nation, all of God's people, will come under his rule in such a way that they will no longer fluctuate spiritually like they did in the time of the kings. That's not going to be necessary. They're going to have a, a king who always rules justly and righteously. So, for example, Isaiah says, this king that's coming for unto us, a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. And his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth 
and forevermore. And the zeal, the passion, the fervor of God will do this. Do you see the connection there? You see how, how God is like, okay, listen, this kingdom thing, it's still in play. I'm still going to build my kingdom. This is still going to happen. Everybody keeps trying to muck it up, but I've got one target. There's one thing that I'm going to accomplish. Or maybe, maybe you can think of other times, like when Jeremiah and Ezekiel gave countless beautiful pictures of the glorious future, of what it would look like when mankind lived under the rule of God, a time when, when he would take out of them a heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh that was willing to submit to his rule and his commandments, a time when God would restore what sin has destroyed and there would flow this, this river of life in the midst of that kingdom. And everybody would have access to it. And the nations would honor God. And then the Old Testament leaves off with the voice of the Lord through the prophets and through Malachi, the final prophet, saying, there's coming a time where I'm going to send somebody in the same spirit and power of Elijah, and he's going to prepare the way for that king and that kingdom when it comes. Boom. Enter John the Baptist in the New Testament. 400 years of silence. What does he come preaching? Anybody remember what John the Baptist comes preaching? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This heavenly kingdom, this place where God's rule is being accomplished right now, presently, where everything in heaven submits and surrenders to his rule, the kingdom of heaven is coming down. It's here. It's at hand. The king is coming. So he says, make straight your paths. Like, don't, don't be living crooked. Prepare the way. This was the tradition. If you knew that a king was visiting, one of the things that you would do is make it easy for him to travel through your town. So they would go out and they would like dig up all the potholes and smooth it all out and make the way straight so that the king and his army and his military could come and pass through the city. And he says, That's what I, this is that time. Do the work. The king's outside the city gates. He's about to enter in. And through the New Testament and through the Gospels, we see God beginning to set up something incredible. Each Gospel traces this reality from a slightly different angle. But the storyline is really still the same. Jesus comes on the scene as a representative of God's surrendered people. As someone who lives under the rule of his Father. I always do those things, he said, that please the Father. And then think about the parallels. This is so fascinating to me. Hey, listen, if, you, if you're a person who's like, yeah, I, you know, Old Testament, I don't really, you know, whatever. Wait till you see these connections. It's so powerful. I mean, Matthew and Luke, for example, both uh, open up with genealogies, giving a reference to what Jesus' lineage is, actually. And both of them trace him both through Mary and through Matthew, all the way back to David, to the one who was promised that someone would sit upon his throne forever and ever, and he would have an eternal kingdom. And, and then Matthew's gospel. If we were just to, let's just walk. I want you to just, don't turn there, but just listen here, and let's walk through the gospel of Matthew. L listen what happens. Matthew reminds us that Jesus was a miraculous baby, spared 
by going to Egypt and then at some point was called out of Egypt back to his homeland. Does that sound familiar? What about this? All four of the Gospels tell us that John the Baptist fulfills the ministry of Elijah as a figure that would point to God's king and kingdom. And that's exactly what John preaches. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, Matthew 3, 2. And then after Jesus is called out as God's son, you are my people. Behold, my, my son in whom I'm well pleased, right? You're my people. You see the same pattern happening over again. What happens to Jesus? He goes into the desert to be tested for 40 days. Not 40 years like the children of Israel, but for 40 days. And, and does he pass the test? You bet. He passes the test. He starts preaching when he comes back from the desert. What's the first thing that he starts preaching? Repent. Why? The kingdom is here. This is the kingdom. The good news, the gospel, the kingdom. It's happening. It's right now. The king is present. And then he does what Moses did in the desert. He begins to exposit to them and explain to them the command of God, the rule of God. And in Matthew 5-7, through the Sermon on the Mount, it's the parallel to Mount Sinai where, where Jesus says the meaning of the command here, the meaning of the law, is people ruled from the heart. They're, they're not just trying to avoid adultery. They're trying to surrender at the deepest level so that they don't lust. They're not trying to avoid murder. They're avoiding hatred because they're ruled by God at the core of who they are. And as he expounds the law to them, in Matthew chapter 5-7, through seven, you see Jesus giving the true meaning of what it means to be ruled by God. He starts fulfilling all these kingdom prophecies from the prophets. These promises that would mark the time of the kingdom. And he said, you know, in Isaiah it says that the wine would flow. And what's Jesus' first miracle? He turns water into wine. Remember that? Uh, that there would be bread without abundance. How many times? Two times Jesus uh, multiplies bread, right, and feeds a multitude. That the lame would walk, that the lepers would be healed, that the blind would see, that the Gentiles would see light. Remember the centurion? Not an Israelite who comes to Jesus and has more faith than all the house of Israel? That the dead would be raised. And that all of this good news would be available to everybody without question. Not just the religious elite who could afford sacrifices, can afford to look holy on the outside, but to every individual, the kingdom of God would come and that justice would be fully accomplished. And then, after that, Matthew 10 Jesus gathers how many disciples? How many? Twelve. Twelve disciples. Does that ring a bell? Twelve patriarchs? What's happening? Jesus is forming a new kingdom. He's saying there's this new kingdom, right? And, and, and I've got 12 ambassadors, just like they were the 12 tribes of Israel, and, and I'm sending them now, and there's this new kingdom. Then midway through the Gospels, when the disciples and others are beginning to kind of catch on. He says, oh, who do you think that I am? Thou art the Christ, the Messiah, the King that was promised to come. He says, oh, you're right, you're right. And then he goes on to say, and by the way, I'm going to go suffer and die. Now, they didn't understand what that meant or why he would suffer and die. In fact, they even tried to rebuke him, but the reality was that he was going to suffer and die for the sins of his people, his kingdom. 
He ascends the mountain where Moses is present once again to behold the glory of God. And the glory of that Moses saw on the mountain that caused his face to glow, you remember that? Moses reflected that glory. Jesus is emanating that glory. It's coming from him. Moses is getting a second suntan, right? But this time, it's not in the face of Jehovah. It's in the face of Jesus Christ. Then Jesus is presented as a king entering on a donkey. Jesus begins to talk about the summation of all God's plan and his rule. Jesus changes the nature of of the Passover meal to make it a new covenant meal. He admits to being... Uh, the coming king Messiah to the Sanhedrin when he's on trial. He's made to look like a king when he's crucified. He put a crown of thorns on him. They gave him a scepter. After his death and resurrection, Jesus appears to his disciples, and he says to them, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached into every corner of the earth. Then in Acts chapter 1, the, the, the disciples are like, okay, so uh, is, is this the kingdom? Is this the moment? Is, this, is it now? And Jesus says, I, I'm not going to tell you everything. Well, this is what I want you to do. Go and wait for the promise of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes upon them, and Peter preaches. Acts chapter 2, you remember that story? 3,000 souls get saved, and something incredible happens. When those souls get saved... They get saved under the preaching of Peter who says what God promised to do in rebuilding the household and the throne of David, he's now doing again. Remember what Joel the prophet said? That there was coming this time where God would pour out his spirit on all flesh and everybody would get to be close to God? It's happening right now. The rule of God is happening right now at this moment. And then through the epistles... We see God ruling over his kingdom, telling them how to be married and how to live and how to manage their finances and how to love each other and how to forgive and how to confess their sin and to live in righteousness and to battle it out with the enemy. All of that is included in the epistles. It's people living under the rule of God. And then you get to the book of Revelation. Oh, man. I wish I, could, I, wish I had time to walk through it with you, but the, the, the just of it is this. There has always been two kingdoms, the kingdom under God's rule and the kingdom that was not under God's rule. And in Revelation, it's called Babylon, right? And at the end of the story, when all of the apostles have died and John is the last one and people are left going, so is this kingdom ever going to happen? Because we're getting slaughtered over here. You're the last surviving apostle. Are we ever going to have this kingdom? You've been telling us this kingdom would come up and it would replace all the kingdoms of the earth. And what's happening? Because we are the last people here. And John, you're the last apostle. And what's happening? And John says, hey, don't worry. The kingdom's still coming. It's here. It's been inaugurated. The king has come. He's gone to occupy his throne in heaven. But he's coming again to take full power of everything. And every tear will be wiped away. And death itself will be undone. And his people will be redeemed with finality. God the Father, the weight and the glory, the kabod, the, the fullness of his presence will overshadow his people for all of eternity. There's not even a need for the Son any longer. 
The Holy Spirit will be bubbling up from within them and God's people will be one with God and Jesus the Son will be on the throne and that will be their existence under the rule of God for all eternity. One story. One plan, one agenda. Okay, last thing. I'm running a little bit long, so I want to wrap this up. So what? Jeremy, you talked, and you talked and talked. (laughs) Why does this matter to us? Two things. It makes sense of the Bible, and it makes sense of our life. It makes sense of the Bible in that we go, God is not doing two separate things. His life matters. He's fulfilling the promises of the kingdom through his life. He's showing us what the kingdom looks like when it comes in fullness, when every person is healed, and there are no lepers, and death itself works backwards. That's what is being displayed through the life of Jesus, the fullness of God's kingdom when he rules in our presence. And it makes sense of our life. All of a sudden, I go, man... When I'm submitted to Jesus and I'm allowing him to have authority over me, look at what happens. He rules over my finances. He rules over my family and my, my role as a husband or as a wife or as a child. He rules over my church community and he rules over my heart and my obedience and he reminds me of his grace and forgiveness. And in every way, in every aspect, in every part of my life, he reigns supreme. In all of it. It makes sense of the Bible when we understand the kingdom. And it makes sense of our life, our mission, our family, our finances, our work, our morality. All of these things flow out of our understanding of what it means to be ruled by God. So, my call to you, my question to you would be, have you come under God's rule? That's been his goal from the beginning. Will you let him be king? Amen? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the reminder, Lord. We, we need to rehearse these truths over and over again because, Lord, it's easy for us to put our heads down, our noses down, and not see. We belong to you. You're our God, and we are your people. And it's our job to joyfully surrender to your authority and follow you all of our lives. May our lives be a service to your glory and a reflection of who you are in the world. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you guys. Have a wonderful night.